Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. Back by popular demand is Deirdre Bosa. She is the co-host of CNBC's Tech Check and, and my podcasting friend right now, for now. You know what? Happy Valentine's Day to you. There is no other financial commentator I would rather spend my Valentine's Day with. Aww, so thanks for I having did. me. I, I just did, just so our listener, I'm doing a little heart uh, in, in the thing here. So thanks so much, Debo, for, for coming back on OK Computer. And, and stick around, people. After our conversation, we have Trevor Marshall, the CTO and co-founder of Current, and Meltem Demers. Meltem is the Chief Strategy Officer over there at CoinShares. We're going to talk all things crypto. That's not something we've done in a long time here on OK Computer. So that's a great conversation. Stick around for that. All right, Debo, before we hit some headlines that you and I both wanted to cover here, I just wanted to get for our listener, what are some of the things, I, I know a lot of them rely on you breaking in the co-host of Tech Check on CNBC. What are some of the, the sources that you rely on? How do you stay up to date? Like, what are some feeds that you follow? What are some podcasts? What, what are you into here? So Is it's it really? a mix of traditional media, Twitter, people on Twitter, I should say, specifically blogs. I'm just constantly, much like you probably are, Dan, consuming things from different platforms. In terms of blogs, I really love Ben Thompson's Stratechery. I said it Stratchery for so long. And <laughs> I was just corrected, Stratechery, but it's one of my favorites. He's done really incredible stuff this past week, specifically on Google versus Microsoft on the AI wars. He talks about platforms and going vertical, and he's just all around. I love pretty much everything that he writes. In terms of publications, I would say the first thing I read in the morning, this might surprise you, Dan, it's Barron's. I love Barron's. It's quite stocky, right? And it's very real time. So it's the first thing that I open up and then I usually go to the journal and the Financial Times and from there on more different sources. In terms of Twitter followings, you know, people like Orlando Bravo, right? Because he is so in tune with the public markets and valuation. So I like to see inside of his mind and what he's thinking. Another good one um, who I know you know well, Dan, is Bill Gurley because his blog posts too, they're kind of timeless, right? You can go back 10 years and look at what he says about multiples and it's very relevant today when investors are looking for profitability. In terms of Silicon Valley specific regs, if you will, you and I share a love of the information, The Verge, a few other ones. Twitter accounts too, tech meme. Do you follow that one? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting. So yeah, we definitely have a lot of crossover and I do what you do. I like to kind of get through, um, back in the olden days, we'd call it like our RSS feed, right? And, and get through it. I mean, Twitter serves as that kind of now. I'm spending much less time on Twitter and which actually speaks to the fact that like I am subscribing to more and more newsletters of some of my favorite follows on Twitter. One of them is Casey Newton. I know you know Casey. He's got the platformer and he just started, I think a few months ago, this is a great podcast um, with Kevin Russo 
the New York Times. It's on the New York Times podcast feed. It's called Hard Fork. They had a great rundown of this kind of Bing, uh, this kind of open AI, deep mind Google war that's going on here that came out over the weekend. I thought that was great. I also, you know, the information is, is all day long. Ben Thompson is one of my first reads as it relates to tech. And I do like the decoder. And obviously, Kara Swisher, the queen of, of tech reporting here. Um, is her. And then I got to tell you, uh, our friend Kate Rooney out there, you and Kate are must follows as it relates to all things tech from one market in San Francisco. All right, we just did that. Let's hit some of these. Let's hit some of these headlines because some of them are kind of near and dear to your tech heart and your reporting here. Um, this was one from the information, and I thought this is has like much broader implications. I think some people will try to kind of say this is very Twitter specific, given what's gone on over there. But earlier today, Twitter cut Salesforce bill seventy five percent as more buyers scrutinize software spending. This is a theme I know that you've been hitting on. We've been talking about as you're seeing big tech do layoffs, this is going to affect some of these like seats, some of these licensing um, from some of these SaaS companies. Talk to me a little bit about this, how you're thinking about this, how this kind of reporting has evolved for you over the last few months where we've seen these kind of, you know, big layoffs really stepped up, not just from tech startups, but also for some of these big platform companies? Well, evolve is the right word because it really has been an evolution. When we saw that we were heading into the softer macro backdrop, the first thing we talked about was digital advertising because that is a very easy place for enterprises to cut. So we looked at the effect on Meta and Google and Snap and companies whose main business was digital advertising. But as we went on and cost-cutting efficiency became the buzzword on earnings calls. It started to be more about enterprise software costs, the cloud. And I think that people were well expecting this, especially when it comes to the hyperscalers, the big cloud players like Azure from Microsoft, AWS from Amazon, and Google Cloud. But it also seems like the market didn't anticipate that it would be this vulnerable. You know, you look into AWS falling into the lower teens potentially this year. That's a big come down from the growth rates that investors have become used to. So Salesforce is another evolution of this. For Twitter to cut 75%, that seems drastic, but that's also the amount by which it reduced its workforce. So it's kind of giving us and Silicon Valley in general a lesson in what is need to have and what's nice to have. We don't know if this experiment, we said this before, Dan, we don't know how this experiment turns out, maybe not very well, but for the time being, Twitter and Elon Musk are showing the rest of Silicon Valley that you can get by at least for some time with a lot less spend on enterprise, less employees. Yeah, you know, it's funny. And, and that's something that I keep hearing a, a little bit about what Twitter's teaching Silicon Valley. And the truth is, is like, let's be frank, Twitter's not working particularly well, and, and they don't have a workforce that's particularly motivated. And let's see how innovative they are going forward. And, and you yeah. know, it's not working well, but has it ever? Like, is there a big difference in how it was working a year ago? I would just come back with that, that I don't think it's working any worse. Totally. And, and I and I get that. And, and maybe it was a bit bloated. And I know there's a lot of stats about revenue per you know employee. But to me, if this company can't grow and it just lost, let's say, half of its advertising revenue and they are not picking up subscription to kind of, you know, take on the mantle here, you know, this might be a really troubled sort of company. So, I mean, to me, you know, what I think is most interesting about this story, and, and I think you laid it out pretty well, you know, last week we were talking about the deceleration that we saw in these public cloud numbers after Q4 earnings. And, you know, when you think about it, yes, 
ad supported models were stressed at first. Then you saw, you know, the, the layoffs coming right in those sorts of companies. Then you saw the deceleration in cloud. And now you're seeing some of these, you know, SaaS companies. So it's kind of like this kind of cycle here. And, and you could call it a bit of a death spiral, if you will. And I don't mean to sound so hyperbolic, but this is not done here. These sorts of announcements, I suspect we're going to start seeing more and more from some of these SaaS companies. And if you cut Salesforce, think about what else you could cut, right? And sort of the SaaS companies that maybe became commodified over the last few years, like a Slack and a Zoom that teams can do maybe not as well, but well enough when you're trying to cut costs. Yeah. And, and then this is a good segue. This is also from the information from yesterday. And this is a company that you've reported on extensively. You know, this is Uber. Uber shifts computing work to Oracle and Google Cloud. And I think it's interesting because some of the commentary in that article was saying that Dara was just not into kind of having that sort of infrastructure or that sort of data for the company on these public clouds here. Thoughts on that? Because this is a company that you know really well here. Is this just all about cost cutting here? And this is kind of finally one of the things that they thought they could take a chop at. It was kind of low-hanging fruit. Well, I actually see this as the opposite of the story that we just talked about, sort of the bull and secular case for the public cloud. Honestly, I thought I knew everything I could know about Uber, but it surprised me that they were working on-prem for a lot of the tasks that it does. And I do think that it's an anomaly in the tech space. I think that most tech companies are using public cloud for the majority of the processes that they do. But this shows you that, okay, maybe we might still be in the early innings of cloud adoption in terms of infrastructure. There was a sense that we moved on to services and applications, and it's cheaper for Uber to do so, to put its business fully on the cloud. What other companies are out there? We know that there's a lot, especially outside of tech, but it tells us that there's still some inside of tech. And I remember, I go back to Dropbox. Do you remember that? Close to its IPO. It moved everything from public cloud to on-prem in order to save costs. And I think maybe the debate is still up as to where what's the most cost efficient thing to do but we're gonna find out i guess in the weeks and months to come yeah so some of our listeners might not know this but i first saw deirdre she was the co-host of squawk box asia you reported from singapore for years before you came back to the u.s here and so i kind of wanted to kind of key on on this topic and it's something that i don't think is getting a lot of press when you think of just what has happened in the aftermath of the pandemic and this whole idea of deglobalization, reshoring jobs, if you look at this sort of tit for tat that we are on an economic front with China, right? And so this started with the tariff war, you know, four or, or so years ago. And it's kind of, you know, a lot of those tariffs are still there. We see, you know, a, a whole host of kind of back and forth between, you know, the ban of, of selling advanced chips to China and, and some of the stuff that they're doing. And now this whole balloon gate or whatever you want to call it here, it just seems from a geopolitical standpoint, things are kind of getting ratcheted up. And I'm just curious, you know, some of the data or some of the, the, the numbers that we saw from companies like Apple and Tesla in China, and I think you and I talked about this briefly last week, though, the reliance on a Chinese consumer, the reliance on manufacturing, the reliance on raw materials when it comes to Tesla and some of the components that go into all of these sorts of devices. I just wonder, when you think about where Apple is in market share for smartphones and where Tesla is in market 
market share for EVs in China, they're not great. There's a lot of local manufacturers that are doing much better than them, right? And so I just wonder if this is the sort of thing, are we going to see some sort of nationalistic tendencies kind of dialed up? And I guess in the backdrop of this is TikTok. You know, we see this growing sort of fervor to kind of ban TikTok here. And what sort of domino effect would that start with U.S. multinationals who are really relying a great deal on China for all the reasons I just mentioned above? I'm just curious, like your experience over in Asia and covering these sorts of stories for years and years before some of the stuff really started bubbling up. Is this something that you think is underreported here in the U.S. right now? I mean, this dynamic has been at play for, for many, many years, you could argue, over a decade. And I lived and breathed this stuff because I actually started my career in Beijing at the center of it all for CCTV, which was the state-backed media. So I was inside the system seeing how they viewed Western companies and Western sales to Chinese consumers. We're in the U.S., we're pretty... US centric. But the fact that we have been talking about China so much over the last few years, whether that be Huawei, whether that be the Chinese balloon, whether that be the tariffs, whether that be the export restrictions on Chinese chips, certainly something is bubbling up here. And it has enormous business implications. You talk about some of the biggest companies in the world, Apple has had so much success in China, one of the few companies to do so also, you only have a handful of American companies that have actually managed to penetrate that market and be successful there. But an Apple is looking to diversify away to places like India and Vietnam. Tesla has also had a lot of success, but now they're seeing what competition <laughs> really is like. And that's the thing. Whenever you're operating in China, that's what I learned from my years living there. You are on their field. That field will change at any times, as will the rules. And you may get a long time to play on what you think are the rules, but they could flip in a second. And that's been a lot of the story over the last few years as well. Even for Chinese companies like Tencent and Alibaba and Jack Ma, the rules can change on them. So there's just so much risk but so much reward too, in the case of Apple and Tesla and Starbucks and Nike. I guess what I wonder is, is that if we really are getting things dialed up here, is that in, you know, some of these multinationals have already moved aggressively to kind of move to Vietnam or Mexico or Brazil. I mean, a whole host of other, you know, emerging market companies. How important might that be for the Chinese going forward? I get it. You know, Huawei and Foxconn and, you know, all these companies that do a lot of manufacturing over there, we are putting their citizens to work here, right? But if those those jobs are going away and it seems like that is going to be the trend then how much do they how much do they care about access to their consumers you know what i mean so like i just kind of wonder you know we know what's happened in the digital landscape as it relates to our companies over there they're basically not there right and so if you take the manufacturing piece out of it, I think that these companies are far less important. And, and I just wonder if this is something that we're going to start to see, you know, with an Apple, a Tesla in the near future, because again, they don't have substantial market share in their key markets. And at some point, it just seems like low hanging fruit for the Chinese Communist Party to really kind of make a move against. Well, I would say there's another dynamic at play here, and that is developing markets too. We tend to think about things as in, okay, you've got the West and you've got China, but there's Africa, there's all these other markets where China has really been able to gain a foothold. So you take a company like Huawei, right, which was really hurt badly by the US export restrictions. They couldn't get the chips they needed. Their smartphone business was basically left for dead because they couldn't get any Android updates. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, aren't they going to retaliate? Are they going to do something to Apple? It just feels like this is such a symbolic, important company, one of the biggest technology companies in China. They didn't do anything, but 
what they did is they pivoted very quietly. They're still um, the biggest telecom infrastructure provider in the world, and they may not be selling to Western countries, but they're selling to the developing world, which is keeping their numbers up. And guess what? They're also now a big cloud provider because they're getting government contracts. So never underestimate the ability of Beijing with the more than billion people they control to make a business from nothing. So they don't necessarily need us. I, that, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. They may not need Apple or Tesla at the end of the day. That's probably a bit too hyperbolic. They do need it because they do provide so many jobs there in the manufacturing sector. But I think that while we're diversifying, our companies are diversifying, so are they. Here's a company that uh, you've done extensive reporting on. And and for all intents and purposes, I mean, here's a company. This is Airbnb, and they're going to report tonight as we're recording here on February 14th. By the time you're listening to this, you will have already seen their Q4 report and whatever guidance they want to give. And you know, one of the things that's interesting to me about this company is that they made it through the pandemic. This was pre-pandemic IPO. This was kind of like one of the poster child for the web 2.0, if you will, right? And again, a tremendously innovative company that just ate its competition, as you think about it, in the hospitality space and had the valuation to show for it. And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me is that this stock was trading much like many mega cap tech stocks. And this is a mega cap. It's got a $77 billion market cap. It was trading at an all-time low. Deirdre, at the end of December, as you know, and, and the stock was trading, I think, in the low 80s. And here we are just at 120. I mean, that is a massive move right now, right? And so all of a sudden, here is a tech company that is profitable. But one of the things that I think is really interesting is that expected revenue growth is basically you know, low to mid-teens for the next few years or so. So here's this stock trading on 2023, about eight times sales and about 40 times earnings. And again, it is profitable. But all of a sudden, this two-month move or a month and a half or so of greater than 40% makes this stock look very expensive. And so I'm just curious, is this something that you're starting to think about more and more? Because it was easier to make a case when the sentiment was really bad at the end of last year. We were clearly in a bear market. Now, all of a sudden, we've had these ricochets higher, and a lot of these stocks look very expensive. It was easier to make that case during the pandemic as well, when people wanted to do more home sharing versus hotels, but the hotel world is coming back. And during the pandemic, Airbnb focused on its core. So it has hotel tonight, but it doesn't have the kind of reach that the OTAs have. And you talk about this being an expensive stock. You compare the forward PE of Airbnb to Expedia, to booking holdings, and it's enormous. You are just paying so much more for this company. Something I've wondered for a long time is where does Airbnb go next? Pre-pandemic, it was actually getting ready to develop build, operate its own hotels. It backed away from that. And that has been really, really good for Brian Chesky and his team in terms of what investors wanted and reaching that valuation that you've been talking about, that focus on core, that discipline. He was there before anyone else was in terms of the sharing economy. And they never overhired during the pandemic. So they come from a much better position. That said, now that they're generating good amount of cash flow, now that they're gap profitable, what are they going to invest in? And I haven't really got a clear answer from Chesky over the last few quarters. I ask him this all the time. Yes, experiences, but they don't even report that. So I'm skeptical as to how big of a business that actually is. Do they start going vertical here? That can be the kiss of death sometimes. We saw what happened when Zillow did that with iBuying. But it seems interesting for Airbnb to have more control over its product and offer more to its customers who are maybe looking for this, maybe looking for more hotel travel. 
Yeah, well, it's funny. If there is a change or a shift in kind of priorities there and go vertical, I think that iBuying is a great example. But when you think of like an Expedia and you just mentioned it, I mean, here's a company that is growing sales, expected 11% this year, trades at one and a half times sales, 12 times earnings. This is a very profitable company with 86% gross margins. I mean, if you're playing a little game we do on Fast Money every once in a while, would you rather? I think they're exposed to a lot of the same trends and, and a kind of broader sort of offering. And you could make the case I mean, this is maybe like kind of an Uber versus Lyft scenario where Uber is in a bunch of other different markets, right? Rather than just ride share and also geographically where Lyft has really been punished for just kind of the focused on domestic ride share where Uber has been able to kind of, you know, obviously delivery has been a huge part of it and, and really kind of flex their scale in, in other businesses. And, and maybe that's kind of the equivalent of an Expedia. But again, you know, from a valuation standpoint, if you like Airbnb for a lot of the reasons that you just mentioned, I think it's probably safe to say that Expedia should work in those same scenarios. Is that a, a good analogy or a bad analogy? I think it's a decent analogy, except that I think that Chesky and his team are more experienced, more skilled, better at pivoting than the Lyft team. Yeah. And it's run by a founder. So, so is Lyft. That's not to say, but you know, Uber has a scale. Airbnb absolutely has the scale over its competitors. If you're talking purely home sharing, which if you think this is the growth area, then Airbnb may be better positioned. I also think they have better technology maybe than Expedia and Booking because they grew up in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. They have a CFO that came from Amazon. So it kind of feels like their management team has a little bit of everything. They have a founder, really excited, innovative founder in Brian Chesky, but they also have a really smart CFO who's done this at Amazon before. So I think, I think their team is unique and should they need to pivot I wouldn't be surprised if they're already thinking about it. They're just not telling us. All right, last thing before we get out of here, let's talk about um, activism. It seems like there's been a lot of focus on some Silicon Valley. I love Valley this topic. Yeah, I know, but it, it, it really is surprising to me when some of the names that we've seen already, I mean, for all intents and purposes, that's how the Twitter thing got going a couple years ago. There was uh, activists circling around that all the time. We've seen it in Salesforce. And so now we're, we're seeing Value Act took a stake in Spotify. Spotify's had a massive rally, like many of the names we just talked about. Here's a company again, this is like past its kind of hyper growth phase expected mid teens sales growth for the next few years. It, they still lose a lot of money here. So there's really no PE that you can assign to this thing on a sales basis or price to sales about one and a half times or so. And again, I mean, I think that Daniel Eck has been pretty honest about this. I think in his late January Q4 report, they talked about how they probably got a little bit over their skis and their spending in and around podcasting, not just for content, but also ad networks and production networks, that sort of thing. So thoughts here when you see after such a big move, Move, you see activists kind of swarming a name like this. And Value Act, they don't take huge stakes, but they do make a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. I mean, the trend itself, the fact that CRM has, what, five activists circling, it's been fascinating to cover this year in this market environment. As it relates to Spotify in general, you probably know this better than anyone, Dan, because you're a podcaster. Spotify spent so much money to acquire The Ringer, Joe Rogan, Caller Daddy, and you don't really need the distribution platform, right? I think that maybe that was seen as something more valuable than it actually was, or maybe it's become commodified, that you don't need to acquire the networks, you just need to acquire the individual. And that's what's happened at The Ringer, right? Is that a lot of the individual talents have gone off and done their own thing, making that acquisition look not as good as it maybe once was thought. And I'm so agnostic when it comes to platforms 
and how I get my podcasts. Yeah, no, and, and I guess it's really interesting the the difference between let's say the Ringer and that content, and then Joe Rogan. I mean, Joe Rogan is exclusive; you can only get it on Spotify. But if you want Bill Simmons, you can get him on you know any podcasting network. And I think that was probably the one that makes the most sense here. So again, we have the history of SiriusXM doing this with Howard Stern, and and that's almost going back twenty years ago. And I think that they probably would have thought about doing it differently as it relates to their content. But again, there's so many different ways to kind of access. This content going forward that acts as kind of discovery in a way. So, you know, it is interesting when we think about a lot of these digital companies and we think of the sort of margins that they have in the 70% plus. I mean, this is a very low margin business. And part of it is just kind of the, the spend on content. And, you know, we know that we have that lesson from Netflix, but this is like a sub 30, you know, margin business. And I've always wondered is, you know, if I were Netflix, you know, it's often been kicked around as a potential acquisition target. But I, I would wonder if like if they want to expand horizontal and get into kind of streaming music and podcasting. And that would probably make a whole heck of a lot of sense. But again, that's not even a business that has particularly high margins. So I'm wondering, you know, we've seen, again, I, I know you're really interested in the activism. We've seen private equity like the Toma Brava. We've seen, uh, you know, a lot of financial buyers. Do you think that we're going to see some strategic M&A? So we've seen a lot of the sorts of things that if you're thinking about how does tech bottom, those would be a good sign if we were, a, and again, the regulatory environment it's difficult. I'm just curious, is that something that's on your radar? I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and valuations. And last year, we had this total re-rating of all of tech, essentially. And it felt like there was still this displacement between where companies thought they should be valued and where potential acquirers thought they should be valued. And there was this big disconnect. And what has the first six weeks of this year done? It's probably broadened that. It's said to some of these you know, the hottest players of 2021, oh, look, our valuation wasn't at rock bottom. We're actually worth more because of this market rally we've seen. We had Joey Levine from IAC on Tech Check this morning saying that he thinks there's going to be more transactions this year, later on this year. But I still see that disconnect. And I wonder what it's going to take to, especially some of the tech companies that where the voting rights are still held with the founders or the CEOs. Does that gap become closer. We've certainly seen it with some of the software companies, right? And you mentioned Tomo Bravo doing deals and some others. But are we going to see a huge increase? I don't know. I think the rally this year has made me second guess whether we're any closer to that. Well, I got you there. All right. Well, the rally has made me second guess a whole heck of a lot of things <laughs> here. Um, I've been on the other side of it. If you are a on the tape or market call or fast money viewer or listener, you know that I've, uh, I'm not participating in this rally right now. All right, Debo, we really appreciate you joining us here. I hope you'll come back. I, I you know, the time that you made for us and kind of articulating a bit more on your reporting on Tech Check is fabulous for our listeners. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you as always for having me. All right, stick around. Trevor Marshall of Current and Meltem Demirers of CoinShares. Welcome back to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am here with Meltem Demirers. He is the Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares and also Trevor Marshall. He is the CTO and co-founder of Current, where we are recording this podcast. We are in their global headquarters here in Chelsea, in Manhattan. Meltem, it's been a while since you've been back on the pod. You've been busy, haven't you? It's been a hot minute, but here we are. Well, yeah, have you seen my industry? It's a clown car <laughs> that's been lit on fire and pushed off a cliff. So, you know. 
we're going to get into that. And I have to thank Trevor, who I am now a tenant of their of their fine um, organization it's here. It's great at, to see you here every morning. Every, every morning we bump into each other over at the water cooler here. All right, listen, guys, I just have one question that we need to focus on right now. Does fortune still favor the brave? Because I watched the Super Bowl the other night. I didn't see any crypto commercials here. And I'm wondering a little bit, like, what the hell happened? I mean, like, the calendar turned, like, Bitcoin was left for dead. A lot of the really exciting narratives in and around crypto that really bubbled up in 2021, they still had some life in 2022. They kind of went away at the end of last year. And then it all changed, you know, 2023. It feels like it's kind of a different narrative. So talk to me, guys. Like, what is the state of things right here? I know that, like, listen, some of the people who've been doing things correctly, they've been in the game, and I say the game, for a long time, right? I think you guys always been very clear about the peaks, the valleys, you know what I mean? But if you look at it, it's still bottom left, upper right for the most part. And I'm just curious, Melton, what are we thinking here? Is it as easy as a calendar change here to change the sentiment? And I know that SBF, just took up so much oxygen in the room late last year. Don't want to talk about it anymore. Don't want to talk about him. But it feels like a distant memory. So talk to me about 2023. Like why has the narrative shifted so dramatically? Okay. So, you know, I love to start with data, right? So sentiment informs flows and flows at shape prices. So what is going on? Um, In the first six weeks of the year, we have seen a shift from net outflows in publicly listed traded crypto ETPs to net inflows. So in the first six months of the year, we've seen around $250 million of inflows. Global AUM, even at these suppressed prices, is around $28 billion. So that's just looking at the flow side of things. If we look at trading volume, January trading volume was double December trading volume. And then again, when volatility comes back into the market, we see more traders coming back in. So a lot of the action we've seen is like volatility begets momentum, momentum begets more volatility. And crypto tends to be quite recursive, both on the upside and on the downside. And so what we've seen is the last few weeks, traders are back in the market, open to interest on both long and the short side has gone dramatically up. So OI is much higher. And then really notably, in January, we're still net short if we looked at the perps market in particular. And again, perps are like the Bitcoin equivalent or the crypto equivalent of options, but they're options that don't settle. They don't have a settlement date. You just perpetually pay them forward by paying a premium or um, netting a discount, depending on the side of book you're on. So what we saw is we flipped from net short to net long. So I think people are positioning, obviously books rolling over start Q1. The thing I'm more confused by is just the crypto lending market in the state of DeFi. The risk-free rate in the United States of America in the year of our Lord 2023 is close to 5%. If you open an iGov account and you drop 10K in there, I think in Jan that was paying 9% APY. So if the risk-free rate is 4 to 5%, I'm just wondering, you know, who is actually buying risk at five to eight percent? So I think there's some like fundamental challenges here with sort of the risk reward balance. But people are tired of sitting on the sidelines. Money's moving back in. Be interesting to see, you know, what the next few weeks bring. But overall, I think sentiment's been much more positive than we would have expected. And like people want to buy risk, which perplexes me because the risk free rate's incredibly high. So I don't know. Maybe Trevor, do you have a crystal bar? Can you explain to me what's going on here? <laughs> No crystal ball. And I'm a little bit further away from the daily kind of market structures that you get to see sort of in the seat that you're in. I think fortune definitely favors the persistent. I mean, we've been doing this for a long time now. And, you know, there's people who I know who are actually building 
and are continuing to build no matter what the price is doing. And ultimately, that's the fundamental of the whole industry. And so there's going to be a lot of returning to normal as we go towards this direction and the sort of the future of what's actually being promised and fulfilling those promises. I think specifically from my perspective, seeing that there is what appears to be the end of a contagion from what was going on with FTX and like even to the extent of there being some preliminary sort of we're going to be able to pay back um, a certain amount on the Genesis side. Like I think starting to see that stuff shore up is giving a lot more confidence, certainly with folks that are kind of approaching this this market and trying to identify what the risks are. I think that caused a ton of panic. And looking at some of the fundamental metrics that I know Melton has been looking at for years too, like Bitcoin hash rate, all time high still, like there's still a ton of confidence into like this underlying security and consensus and the need for this thing in the world. And that drives all of the other use cases. So getting to the fundamentals, it's kind of like, it's not so much that we're fully returning to optimism, we're back on track from what was like a very large panic, which makes sense that did not seem to have like a concrete end to it. But there's signs that we're sort of seeing the end of it because I know in the end of last year, everyone was like, well, what's next? What's going to get hit next? And I think getting some clarity on that is, is good. I think that you and Meltem are really interesting together to have on this pod because you guys are both operating in, in really two different lanes for all intents and purposes. You built a fintech company and you built it with a lot of the ethos of thinking about what decentralized finance kind of looks like and how it can kind of really be used by the masses, if you will. And so, again, I think one of the things for me over the last couple of years has been like, there's just, you know, millions of people had access, you know, to crypto assets. And then, you know, the punctuation of all of the fraud, you know, last year into this year, I think, does it take people out of it? Does it, you know what I mean? Like, like in a way, is it going to take a couple of years the way we had to after in 18 and 19 to get people refocused on why this exists? And I'm just curious, like how you think about that, Trevor, a little bit, because this time around, a lot of big institutions, a lot of smart institutions, a lot of people that should have been doing much better due diligence in the way they invested in and around the infrastructure in crypto, they really got burned. And I'm wondering how long it takes for them to also come back not just retail this time. What I get always most excited about is the product and like product opportunities. Um, and so you've got folks that are thinking a lot about things like on-chain identity, thinking a lot about the infrastructural requirements of operating in these decentralized systems that still have regulatory oversight required. You know, there won't be sort of a semi-regulated space. It's all going to, you know, have some level of oversight and controls, which makes sense because they protect people and, you know, prevent consumer harm, you know, when it's sort of geared correctly. And so those things take a long time to build. If you're going from zero to a fully fledged product in a few months, you know, that should be maybe a little bit of a flag. And if there's a lesson to be learned from the last two years of like these overnight successes where you don't really know too much about the founders or their previous histories and, and really how they've invested in the growth of their company versus maybe the projections of that growth in terms of what's being displayed outwardly. They're really good products and like they're really good protocols and a lot of the stuff that's being built takes years because there's a lot of problems that need to be solved. And I'm seeing that continue through. So that I'm not seeing the people who are excited about this problem set and this problem space are not stopping working in crypto. Maybe if they're with a company that no longer exists or is running out of funding, they're looking for other opportunities, but they're all still moving in that direction. And a lot of those projects are still like well underway. 
at the end of the day, what I think is so interesting and what's sort of coming through with some of the enforcement action we're seeing in the United States and just the general tone towards crypto. Um, and look, I've been doing this for eight years professionally now, which makes me ancient in my world, which is fascinating because in no other world is eight years like grandma status, but here we are. What is so fascinating to me is there is this continued belief that somehow you can shut down crypto or somehow this is going to be stopped. And I think what we're going to see over the next few years as these things get challenged, whether that's through enforcement actions, through Supreme Court cases that will create case law precedent, they'll then sort of set the tone for what happens going forward. The fact of the matter is like, this cannot be stopped. This is the very principle and ethos of everything we've been building for the last decade now. And what's been built with all of these financial primitives that operate on chain in a market that operates 24-7, 365, without any intermediaries, right? We can be our own market makers. You and I have talked about this before. There's incredible depth and liquidity in these markets. There are all of these tools and all this infrastructure that's been built without a single centralized trusted counterparty. And so what's really interesting is, yes, you can ban things. You can shut off the off-ramps. You can try to throttle and slow the growth of this industry. But it's over, like game over. We have already gotten to the point where we needed to go. What I think is really going to be interesting to see and where I think the fundamental tension is, is this is not stoppable. We also look at what's happening in fintech, right? That movement is not stoppable. That also started about a decade ago, if not a little bit longer ago. These things cannot be slowed down. They cannot be stopped. At the end of the day, consumers want what they want. And what we've experienced with crypto is they're willing to go through incredible hurdles to get access to it. Like the fact that normal human being is willing to open a browser wallet interact with like these really clunky tools that are really hard to use and don't make a lot of sense is definitive proof that people are willing to go through a lot of hurdles they're willing to jump through a lot of hoops to get access to this new market that's being built while connectivity to the broader financial system obviously is going to be important in terms of increasing the addressable market for this asset class and these financial products and services, it's not a necessary prerequisite because what everyone forgets is for the first 10 years of its existence, Bitcoin was completely detached from traditional financial markets. And yet a multi-billion dollar market doing trillions of dollars in transaction volume per year grew out of this. And so I get really excited because we see these conversations happening. Obviously they're concerning at CoinShares for us. We run a regulated business out of Europe and out of Jersey and Channel Island. So we operate in a variety of jurisdictions that fortunately are a bit more progressive than the United States when it comes to setting guidelines and being communicative and clear around what the expectations are. At the end of the day, this cannot be stopped. It will not be stopped. It is only going to accelerate. And so I just think, again, like memes are going to rule the world. These communities that form on this magical place called the internet are incredibly powerful. And regardless of what the market's doing, gross, the narrative is, gross, what regulators want to do, like the people are now deciding what they want and they're voting with their feet, they're voting with their AU. When they're voting with their time and their energy. So like, I'm excited. It's scary. It's messed up. But the fact that Luna happened, Voyager, Celsius, all of these things, FTX happened, literally every regulated platform or every semi-regulated centralized platform in the United States has blown up or imploded in some way. And yet here we are in February of 2023 and the crypto market cap is around a trillion dollars. And last year there were trillions of dollars transacted on the Bitcoin blockchain, the Ethereum blockchain. It's working. It's working the way it's supposed to work.
I get excited. See, I would, might take the other side of that. You know, Melton, you and I first, it was one of our, our first on the tape podcasts. I think it was probably February 2021. And it's interesting. Bitcoin was in and around the same level that, that it is right now. And when you think about, like you just mentioned, okay, nearly a trillion dollars in market cap. I mean, I'm just looking at 430 for Bitcoin and I'm looking at 190 for ETH. And the rest is just like, to me, not particularly interesting, especially when you think about all of the DeFi that was causing a lot of the activity in the last couple of years with this advent of taking at, at, you know, really geared towards retail, which participated, but also financial institutions that participated in a great deal. And, and to me, I would love to be reminded a little bit of what the consumer promise is, because what I know over the last couple of years is that a lot of retail investors, and I also know a lot of institutions that just lost money in this space. Like, so I'm not really sure what the consumer promise is at this moment because, Melton, you started off by saying that it's risk on and that's why this thing, like let's just say crypto has gone from just over the last month or so has gained a couple hundred billion dollars in market cap here. But look at what's happened in the stock market. Look at what's happened you know, all over the place. It really is like a rounding error compared to that. And I'm also still looking at it down 65% from those highs just a, a couple years ago. So I'm just curious, like if you're a listener right now to OK Computer, you just haven't all the fraud, all the stuff that's happened over the last, let's call it six to nine months, took you out of it and you haven't been paying attention. What is the promise right now? Why should somebody who's just kind of refreshed on the topic, like really take a look and, and start thinking about how to invest in the space? For me, the consumer promise has always been transparency. Like this is a system that you can see the insides of, and that's where the trust comes from. You don't have to delegate that trust completely to something that's obsidian and, and really hard to grok. And that is the future of the products that are being built here, which is you can rely upon the system itself. You know, you can, you can actually say, okay, well, these are the rules and the rules are being followed. And I think in a world where there's eroding trust in a lot of institutions, something like this is key to helping to restore Oh, well, you know, there is another path. There is alternatives. And in some ways, it, it can also provide a level of accountability for those more obsidian systems that operate the way they do for efficiency purposes or legacy purposes. So, Melton, you and I have talked for years. You've been very supportive of regulation for the industry, right? But you've also been very critical of how they do it. And so when you look at this SEC chair, Gensler, he knows a lot about the space. I'm not sure he's rooting for it, but he doesn't seem to be preemptive in any way, okay. shape. But, perform. He's but, but hold on, Dan. Hold on. What is Gary Gensler's job? What is the SEC's job? Enforcement. Okay. How do you enforce something that has not been defined? There you go. Yeah. So the regula regulation doesn't exist. So the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, that's there to enforce regulation. Your, your point is, is that how do they enforce regulation if there's no real clear regulation right now? And the issue is the U.S. is a really unique market when it comes to regulation because we have an alphabet soup of regulators, right? We have an alphabet soup of different agencies. You have FINRA, which is not regulation, but that's a standards body. You have the SEC, you have the CFTC, you have, you know, the DOJ, which is responsible for OFAC and the KYC AML side. You have the tax office, you have all these different entities, right? And you have all this guidance that has been developed over the last hundred years of capital markets, let's say, but none of it really captures some of the really unique nuance of crypto. Because at the end of the day, if I'm using a self-hosted wallet, I'm not custodying my assets with anyone under the interpretation of the rules as they are written, that does not qualify me as a financial services business because I'm not providing a 
custodial financial service. And so I think some of the hard part is one day it's, no, this is not in our purview. The next day is, yes, it is in our purview, but it's in the purview of the CFTC. So then it's okay. We're going to comply with that. Then the next day is, oh, the security says under the purview of the SEC. Like It's constantly a shifting. And I think the frustration is, is that from a regulatory perspective, the presupposition, right, the starting principle from which it's always approached in the media, whenever the SEC comes out, is like crypto companies are just doing whatever they want. It's the wild west. I'm like, no, the biggest cost of doing business for every single one of the startups that I've invested in, the 400 companies I've invested in the last eight years, their single biggest line item, their single biggest cost is legal and compliance. Why? Because nobody can figure out what the F is going on. And so I really resent this notion that there are just all these crypto companies out there just trying not to follow the law. I'm like, nobody knows what it is. So trying to comply with a bunch of different things. We're trying to interpret the law. We're hiring very expensive and very clever lawyers to try to interpret the law. But like, at some point, you just have to look at this and say, what are we doing? And what are we trying to accomplish here? And what I go back to is, is this good faith or bad faith engagement? And if I look at the way this is being approached, if I look at how everything under Gensler's time at the SEC has been about enforcing and then PR, doing PR around the enforcement, who are we helping with that? It seems like the only person who we're helping is Gary Gensler's own political agenda. And again, I don't mean to be partisan and I don't mean to make this a critique, but I just, I don't understand how this is supposed to be good faith engagement because from where I'm sitting, it doesn't feel very productive. And that's just my perspective. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's not particularly productive and it seems very reactionary. And I'm just curious, uh, obviously, Trevor, you built a company that works very well within the defined regulation of the land as it relates to traditional finance here. When you see, you know, like over the last few years, these businesses, and again, this this Kraken staking business just got shut down. They paid a big fine. What are we to think about these sorts of things? Because this is some of the stuff that sucked in people, you know what I mean? Like when they're looking for yield, they're looking, this was like an on-ramp to crypto. And when you peel back layers of the onions, there was no there there, right? They seem to be a lot of schemes. And again, there was no regulation in and around this, but I'm just curious, like, is there another form of staking that comes from this or it, does it, ha- like, how does it get better to find and is there a future for that? Well, the first thing is most of our business is really operating within really well-defined regulation. And that regulation is for consumer protection. And it's all like, when you get down to it, if the consumer benefits and you're not causing co- consumer harm, that's the point of the regulation. And I can get by, behind that 100%. I think where it gets a little bit dangerous is where there isn't that clear line that's been established. So where that isn't that clear line isn't established and you get sort of arbitrary designation of this is a certain type of yield or this is a completely different type of thing with no backing of, well, this is what the law says and this is why the law or the recommendation or the memorandum is designed to help prevent consumer harm. I think that's where you get into the sort of the arbitrary decision modes and some of the things that are coming out seem to be a little bit arbitrary in terms of not really connected to what are they trying to prevent. Because there is unquestionably a difference between making a loan through Genesis to FTX and putting capital into an on-chain contract that other people can borrow from in a very fair and open way, right? And, and that's just, you know, one example of a yield mechanism that was, you know, was prevalent over the last few years. And I think the only way to get to that level of correct oversight is going to be high engagement with the actual products that exist and where this yield is coming from for staking in particular. And 
what is the purpose of staking in Ethereum and what benefit does it provide to consumers? Like why is the proof of stake actually a better thing for consumers and why does this staking mechanism, why is it required to exist so that there's an economic incentive for consensus and that you don't have to um, sort of bottleneck a lot of the transactions through proof of work. Now, I have my own opinions about like scalability solutions, but it's sort of going back to the fundamentals of proof of stake in Ethereum is just functionally very different than offering a loan to an entity. And treating them as the same thing is reductive to the point of really killing innovation and potentially having some adverse effects and unintended consequences of where that innovation goes, how people still go and get those opportunities. Because like uh, Melton was saying, like this is this is kind of like water. You put a barrier up, you're gonna, the water will erode it in some way. It's a problem to be solved. So there's sort of an inevitability. This is happening because it is possible. It's sort of like physics. It will happen in some way. And you want to, in my view, as a regular, do your best to sort of be a good conduit for good behavior while not just stopping arbitrarily innovation and sort of progress forward. Meltem, have you been pleasantly surprised with just the move from proof of work to proof of stake as you think about Ethereum? And and again, I think we probably last potted in, into that into that merge, right? I, I guess that's what you guys, you guys call the merge. All right, into that merge. So when it comes to proof of work versus proof of all of this, it, to me, proof of work is incredibly valuable for very different reasons. And I think Bitcoin's value proposition is fundamentally important because it tethers the physical reality of the universe, i.e. thermodynamics, to the security of a network. And that is very important. And I think the connectivity of something that is digital to the fundamentals of thermodynamics, like the laws of our physical universe, is incredibly valuable. I think Ethereum is incredibly valuable because financial computation on a global computer that records state is incredibly valuable. But it is not my role to make value judgments, right? It is my job to offer products and services that people want. It is my role to do research, to clarify and illuminate some of the confusion that people have and help give people frameworks for how they might think about some of these trade-offs. But these things are not substitutes for one another. So proof of work is not a substitute for proof of stake. They have two fundamentally different value propositions two fundamentally different use cases, and they appeal to people who are looking for something fundamentally different. At the end of the day, this is about how network security and how network state is maintained. Both are important, both have their challenges. And again, that nuance is really important. But as we look at regulation, I think it's incredibly, incredibly important. I was very dismayed to see Gary Gensler and his little like, whatever these influencer videos are he's doing, like it needs to stop, it's, it's bad. I imagine somewhere at the SEC, they have like Gary's little potting room set up where he has like a little ring light and he's recording these little like TikTok style videos and they make no sense. But kudos to them for trying to like get hip with it. Very funny that they think this is what young generations want. This is not what the people want. But look, one of the things he said, he made some value statements around proof of stake. And again, I don't think it is the role of a regulator to make subjective value statements. That is not the role. So I just want to discourage that thinking. At the end of the day, what we do is we pay safeguards, we monitor for compliance and ensure adherence. But those value judgments, again, this the whole idea of capitalism and free markets, those value judgments should be made by the people engaging in the buying and selling of these products and services, not by the regulator. Ultimately, when I think of good and bad, I think of does it do harm or not? And like you can measure harm in like financial harm and you can like we have laws so that you don't murder someone and then you go to jail and there's like, you know, that's a good way to prevent harm is by creating sort of a major disincentive for murdering someone. And to a much less dramatic sort of level, 
I do think there's a role for regulation to discourage bad behavior, to discourage people from just being robbed or being lied to in a way that, you know, their their money is gone because a lot of people can fall victim to that. So there's there's to me there's some very clear reasons for regulation to exist certainly for there at least to be a clear method of operating and a clear sort of mechanism for punishing harmful behavior. And I won't say bad behavior and I won't say good behavior because I think that is a good call out. They shouldn't be the ones saying what's good or bad, but there are ways of measuring harm to others. And I think trying to kind of set up some guardrails for people to operate in a safe way makes total sense to me. One last topic here. It was an article in CNN Business, that, yes, that still exists here. Um, it was talking about Super Bowl ads, and we started this conversation by obviously making poking a little fun at last year's Super Bowl, where I, I think very clearly crypto ads like dominated the whole thing. And this headline said, Super Bowl was crypto's coming out party last year's. This year, the party's over. And they quote someone saying, the tone has shifted towards Web3-driven fan engagement over crypto specific advertising. And I think that's kind of interesting here. So it goes on to say crypto firms are focusing less on crypto advertising and more on investing in better user experiences, products, and customer services. And I think this kind of wraps together a lot of it of what we've been talking about here. Talk to me about like the state of Web3. Meltem, you just mentioned that memes are going to continue to rule the world. I will tell you as somebody who's on the Twitter and maybe I don't get it the way you guys do and everything like that. There's far fewer memes these days than there were let's say a year ago, what's the state of kind of web three have some real non crypto brands leaned into this kind of stuff properly. So the Super Bowl did have one crypto slash web three ad and you know what it was. It was for an NFT project called Digidaiku. It was a QR code you scan and it went to the founder's personal Twitter page and you had to follow him to get instructions to claim something. So there was a Twitter a crypto ad it was bad. I don't understand why we're using like company funds to promote our own personal Twitter pages. Whatever. You do you, boo-boo. Not my place to pine. I think the bigger issue is this. like The addressable market for crypto right now is pretty small, right? Because as I mentioned before, there's a lot of hurdles to jump through. And I think also you have to understand like the viewership of the Super Bowl. Those are not the people we're trying to onboard. If you're at home watching the Super Bowl on your 70-inch TV with your fam and you're eating chicken wings with your buddies, like you are not necessarily the person who we're trying to reach because you probably have a financial advisor, you have a brokerage account, you have a current account. That's not the person we're necessarily trying to reach. And also the tone is not right. Like after the FTX situation, nobody really wants to hear about crypto. So it's like a little bit of read the room. I think we're starting to figure out where the crypto audience is. And the crypto audience is where the pain point is, where the friction point is. And so I think people are being much more tired. Also, people don't have money. Their revenues are down bigly. If you look at Coinbase, revenue down bigly. So people are like, just being really careful around what they spend money on, number one. Number two, to the point of Web3 and like meaningful adoption, I think the issue right now is, and this sort of goes back to, if you remember 2017, 2018, this narrative of blockchain, not Bitcoin, blockchain, not not crypto. I think the way that enterprises are looking at Web3 is like, this is an enabling tool to help us do something we're already doing in our business or do it in a new way or do it at lower cost. We have to remember is like, there's only two, and this is where I'm gonna put my little like dork corporate finance on there are only two levers in your business you can increase the top line right or you can decrease costs and thereby increase the bottom line that's it those are your two levers so either you're making me more money and helping me find new revenue streams or expanding my existing revenue streams or you're helping me minimize costs when it comes to new revenue from web3 it's not really there right dolce gabbana sold maybe four million dollars in nfts 
Adidas sold like $18 million in NFTs that they had to split the proceeds. Like it is not yet a big moneymaker. When it comes to cutting costs or expanding distribution potentially, but I think we're still like one or two narrative cycles out from that. So I think we need to look at it more as an enabling technology. That's where the sort of sentiment is right now. And frankly, there's a lot of reputational risk, right? Like we all have egg on our face right now. And so I think people are just very sensitive uh, to that. And we've seen the backlash from big brands engaged with crypto and NFTs. Because at the end of the day, like the perception in the market right now, the average retail user's perception of this industry is not great. And for good reason, because the financial malfeasance and just the sheer ignorance and arrogance and just really poor behavior that we've seen from people who are supposed to be leaders in this industry is appalling. And it's it's embarrassing for me, frankly, sometimes to work in this industry. So that's that's my quick take. I totally agree on the uh, on the marketing thing. It's, it's definitely reading the room. But at the same time, if Bitcoin was up at like 100,000 and trading revenues were up, you'd know there'd be a, a Coinbase ad trying to like say, hey, we're not FTX <laughs> or like reestablishing trust. And so it, it's definitely like a factor. I mean, at least some of the how, how public companies are of just revenues and how are you investing the money that you have? Because at the end of the day, you still have to run a business and maybe that's not the best use of capital if revenues are down. The stuff that I'm excited most about is how to make existing businesses more efficient. I think the, there's a lot more near-term opportunities in real product there. I think especially when it comes down to things like how to operate with identity embedded inside of these applications how to operate in sort of like structured financial products that are actually transparent. These are ways of operating large, expensive, high legal framework things with code, right? That can, you know, greatly reduce costs for a lot of businesses. So yeah, that's probably in the next couple of years where, where we see most of this roll out in the real world. So Meltem, you're kind of close to the trading. You guys create products over there. You look at charts, you have a traditional finance background. When you think about where Bitcoin topped out, it was November of 2021. And it was like weeks before Fed Chair Powell did this huge about face about inflation, right? Remember the, the narrative in 2021 was that inflation was transitory. And the Federal Reserve in late November said they are going to raise interest rates to battle inflation. And almost every expensive risk asset that you can think about on the planet, you know, started to sell off at that point. The NASDAQ had already been selling off a little bit. And that was the top in Bitcoin. And, you know, it's interesting because part of the narrative coming into this year, why the high valuation, money losing NASDAQ stocks, SPACs, I mean, the list went on and on and on. Anything that wasn't bolted down started to rally a little bit because in Investors, for whatever reason, the sentiment changed from the Fed has done their job, they've raised the Fed funds or to about 5% from essentially zero, and it was risk on again. That's how we started this conversation, and Bitcoin started to rally. The one thing I'll just say is that when you think about the potential for rates to go down meaningfully from here, given what we're seeing with inflation, I'm not sure that happens so quickly. And I just wonder, you know, and this is me kind of putting my fast money hat on, Bitcoin's chart is probably one of the worst looking charts that I have on my main fast that screen. I mean that seriously. Even with the rally that it's had over the last month or so, and I could see this thing, A, taking out the December, November lows of last year and headed back to the 2019 highs, which would be around 13,000. And again, this is me playing stock market and crypto. I know nothing about the underlying 
underlying asset and why it should be trading where it is. I'm just telling you purely technically. And I also think that the NASDAQ, I think that this is going to be the thing that hits financial markets in general this year is that rates are going to stay higher for longer and then the economy is going to slow and we're going to have this stagflationary environment. I think it's going to be bad for assets like Bitcoin. So my question to you is if I am right, what does that do to a lot of your like thesis in the, in the near term? Because again, people have their heads down, they're building a lot of the companies in and around it. They are like to your point, they're not particularly profitable right now. They've had, you know what I mean? A bad couple of years. And I wonder what a crypto winter, what it might mean for the industry in general, because again, the froth that's coming out of it now is very different than the froth that came out of it in 2018, because this is a couple of years of, of really sucking in a lot of institutions, a lot of retail, financializing a lot of crypto assets that maybe shouldn't have been financialized. Okay. So like rapid fire point one, this problem is not unique to crypto. You look at fintech, you look at all of these different sectors, right? Generally, like things were way overfunded. There are way too many businesses doing really dumb things that don't make money and probably never will make money outside of this very unique window of time that was 2020 to like mid 2022. So not unique to crypto, but the issues we have on the venture side are like symptomatic of the broader issues we have when it comes to growth investing and this like insanity we saw over the last two years that was a result of zero interest rates and just like this orgy of unfettered capitalism. One. Two, the issues that crypto has, the fundamental issue in my view is you need to sell a product or service to a customer who's willing to pay. And the issue is a lot of things that people are trying to do might be interesting. They might be fun. They might be like cool little pet projects, but they don't make money. So the trend right now in the industry is everyone is realizing that crypto at its core, even Web3 at its core, is all about transactions, right? It's about the flow of value, whether that value is information or data or attestations or these other things, doesn't matter, but it's about value. And in order to extract dollars, in order to extract revenue from this industry, you need to be as close as possible to where the interchange is happening. So a lot of people are pivoting their business models to get closer to touching transaction flow or aiding or facilitating the process in some way so they can clip basis points. So there is this really interesting shift that's starting to happen. We're seeing it in fintech as well. And people are really starting to think about, okay, what's the LTV? What's the cost for customer acquisition? Is this business net profitable on a per unit basis? And if not, what are the fundamental assumptions I have to make for this business to become net profitable? Does a new market need to emerge? Like, does this market need to grow by a factor of 10? But there are a lot of businesses that I think are profitable, will continue to be profitable. They just need to edit their cost structure a bit. But at the end of the day, what people are realizing is like, unless you have a customer who's willing to pay for your product, you don't have a sustainable business, number one. And number two, where the money is made in this business, the most profitable businesses, whether they're protocols or companies, are people who are in the business of interchange, right? Who are close to the flow of transactions. And so so unless you can clip a few basis points from that or consistently insert yourself into that value chain in a meaningful value add way, you're not making money. So that's a very simplistic view. Um, but I think there are a lot of businesses that don't need to exist that do things that yes, are interesting, but they're not things I'm willing to pay for. And I'm like, I'm a very discerning customer. I am also very happy to pay for things if they add value. But the issue is most stuff I'm seeing doesn't add value and frankly, doesn't make my life better in any sort of meaningful way. Melton basically just pitched the the reason that current exists as well, unintentionally, I'm sure. But I mean, yeah, we, we made that choice internally here. I mean, we've been doing our own processing, talking about like literally getting close. We, we operate off of debit interchange soon, credit interchange as well. And we took the decision like early on that we need to be as close to the transaction as possible. We need to be the core system of record. We need to sort of be all of the technology that surrounds that transaction so that there's enough for us to eat on without having to pass on junk fees, which we'll be talking about later. 
But yeah, I think that's ex- exactly right. And I think some of the projects that are very interesting, like they don't need, like they're kind of in R&D mode for a lot of these longer term things that, you know, you're not looking at an infrastructure of hundreds of employees or thousands of employees. It's, you know, less than 10 people working on a problem dedicated like a mathematician, you know, for, for years, having that progress push the product forward. Like those, those, those things aren't going to be disappearing. They luckily got some funding and, and they don't need a lot. All right. Well, listen, guys, we covered a lot of ground here. Meltem Demers from CoinShares, Trevor Marshall, Current. Thank you guys so much. I hope you guys will come back. We'll continue this conversation. And I'm not wishing Bitcoin 13,000, but I'm just telling you that chart looks ominous to me, guys. Stick around. Trevor and I are going to have a quick conversation on junk fees. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. So we had Stuart Stock, your co-founder of Current On with Guy and myself a couple weeks ago. It was prior to the State of the Union address. And it's funny, we were talking about junk fees. They were catching some steam a little bit. And the fact that President Biden talked about them specifically in the banking industry and doing away with them. So Stuart had some kind of choice words, but he hadn't heard the president speak just yet about it. Think about like So talk to us a little bit about here internally, as you think about how you've built this company, you just kind of you know refer to that a little bit. What does that mean to you when you think about huge incumbents, right, that have all of these embedded costs and they're really ripping off um, consumers in general. The fact that the the White House is focused on this, what does it mean to you guys here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it comes first to the definition of a junk fee. Yeah, let's do that. Right. And to me, a junk fee in in sort of the way it's being described uh, now by the president is a fee that's not associated with value back to the customer. And I can think of two examples. There are fees that are to support value and there are fees that are not to support value. Like a great fee that doesn't support value for the amount that it costs is the non-sufficient funds. These are your overdraft fees. These are, you know, me seeing revenues of overdraft fees down like 40%. That I feel really good about that because I think current and others in our space have been a big part of driving the banks to do that for acquisition and retention purposes rather than regulatory purposes. But now you add on sort of strong language around removing these and make a a fairer system. I'm confident that Americans will be better off for it. But there are fees that make sense. For example, when you go to an ATM with your current card that we don't support, it's out of our network, we charge a fee for that usage. And the ATM operator charges a fee. But the reason we do that is because it completely subsidizes the in-network so that we can give customers access to no fee ATM withdrawals. And so that's an example of free. It's it's associated with the value that we're able to provide to customers. And you can really look at the same thing when it comes to access to credit. You need to be able to charge for credit at a certain point so that you can give the access to people who may not have it previously. And you know, credit is something that we're beginning our journey in terms of offering a more robust credit product to our customers. We do operate sort of small credit programs today, which really help with stitching together liquidity between paychecks. But those are examples of things that should exist because they provide sort of the base that you can then go and extend more value to customers. And overall, even if customers are paying something for it, they're getting something for it, right? And it's just like, you know, you pay for things that, that you value. 
Do you find in this environment right now, and again, uh, you know, we've talked with you and Stuart in the past about kind of the demographic of your customer. You're providing this value. You're being very transparent. Like we said before, you kind of built this company with the ethos of, of kind of a decentralized kind of thought process about what you believe the promise of, let's say, crypto is. I mean, right now, we have this really weird situation where when we were just talking about the markets in general. For some reason, investors have come to the conclusion that we're not going to have a recession, but I'm sure a lot of your customers are feeling like it's a recessionary environment, despite the fact that we have unemployment at 53-year lows. We're starting to see consumer spending kind of slow down a little bit. We're starting to see the kind of consumer credit go up a good deal. Talk to us a little bit about that environment, because it is posing, I think, a unique challenge for some fintech companies like yourselves right now, because it literally is one of the oddest periods that I can remember in my professional life, where interest rates have gone up this fast. And and you guys are having the ability to offer what, 4% savings accounts and stuff like that for the first time ever. I mean, like since you guys built this company. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things to note that's important is that for, you know, people who are on the lower half of the income distribution in the US, you're kind of in a permanent recession. So this is not a new environment. And we built our company really around serving a lot of those needs and performing the services that people need given like that, that, that is their financial reality. And so we, we've never been able to go and charge a $35 overdraft fee, you know, like that's never been something that's been on the table. So in many ways, the environment and the the demographic where we saw the opportunity has dictated a lot of the type of revenue model that we were actually able to create, which is really around making sure that customers are getting as much value as possible, staying completely aligned with them and preventing any sort of cost increases that you see at some of these larger institutions that don't, you know, maybe some some of them are out there taking $35 on an overdraft because they can. And that's kind of evil, <laughs> but you know, that is maybe like one way that they're doing it. But oftentimes it is sort of like they're seeing the math of, well, this $35 fee helps pay for the branches that I need to maintain and the technology that I need to support that costs dollars per customer per month, which is completely different than if you built this in a completely cloud native way, you're leveraging technology along the whole way to make sure that cost efficiencies exist from the beginning and only get better at scale and not the other way around. Right. You know what seems to be a, a bit more efficient too? You guys have a new dope logo. Talk to me about that. Did you have any input on that? I'm starting to see some of the folks walk Sorry around with some new swag with it with it on. We changed our signage on, on our podcast here. Anything? Or, or is yeah, some... it's, uh, it was kind of two years in the making. Um, and, and the amazing thing about uh, a, approaching a brand is that you have to get down into the fundamentals of what is your value to your customers. And so we did a ton of work of sort of understanding the personas behind our customers and the segments that we want to go at for really from like emotional segmentation, sort of the idea that really we bank progress seekers. And that's a, that's something that joins no matter where you are on the income spectrum. That's this sort of attitude, this fundamental attitude. And that, all, that flows all the way into ultimately what becomes your logo, the, your tone, and sort of the whole brand architecture around that. I'm super proud of the team. I was very lightly involved just kind of giving my perspective on what we're trying to build, the vision of the company that Stuart and, uh, and I share in that direction. But it's been a, it's a ton of work across tons of people across the org. It's, yeah, very, I'm really happy to see that come to life. Well, listen, it's been a fun couple months so far that we've been in here in these studios, getting to know your team, spending time with these uh, folks. And, and not only that, I, I am a current customer. My family's current customer. Progress we're very, seeker. We're very, we're very happy with the product. So keep it up, man. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. Let's do it again with Meltem very soon. Awesome. Thank you.
If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.